Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, a podcast providing in-depth analysis and coverage of your favorite Milwaukee Brewers by Peter and David Go. Welcome to the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. I'm your host, as always, Peter here. Ready for another episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast, David. I know we're just loaded with all sorts of MLB news. Um, we're trying to cover all of it in one episode. Big news here um, in all of Major League Baseball, right? Yeah, the big news is that there is no news. And unless you have a job that is to uh, cover the lockout, then you, you essentially don't, don't really have a lot of, of current events, current baseball events to talk about. Yeah, unless I guess you're covering minor league signings, uh, not exactly significant ones, but Brewers making a couple of moves. Uh, the hometown kid Caleb Bushley, former uh, UW Lacrosse baseball player, so shout out to to him and the UW Lacrosse baseball organization being selected by the Brewers in the minor league Rule Five draft. Uh, so he's now officially a Brewer. Um, so again, a Wisconsin Wisconsin native back in Milwaukee, and then the Brewers signing a pair of former Astros prospects as well, right? Yeah, John Singleton being the more notable one, Tyler White as well. John Singleton signed, it was I think a seven-year, $28 million extension upon his call-up right away. Kind of a lesson in do you take the guaranteed money or do you wait it out and try to get more? He took the guaranteed money. Seems like he's off uh, a lot better off for it. He had a couple trying years in Houston where he really struggled during years where they were not very competitive. Ended up bouncing around the minors for a couple more years. Actually took three years off of professional baseball before then re-emerging last year in Mexico. Slugged, I think, about 640. So he was excellent. Apparently, he also slimmed down, looked like he was in a lot better shape. So potentially could be maybe a little bit different of a player. He is 30 now. So uh, he he's a little bit on the older side now. Definitely in that post-prospect uh, hype type player. Yeah, and Brewers seem to have liked the the post-top prospect guys. I don't know, Luis Urias. I feel like there have been others in the past that the Brewers have bought in on. I'm not sure necessarily that they've... Certainly, they haven't all played out great, but it seems like they've bought in on some of those guys and uh, a low-risk player. What has Singleton made over his career with, like you said, a, a pretty lackluster career when we look at his numbers as a professional? Well, I believe that it was $28 million guaranteed. So there were, I think, a couple options that were attached to it. So those were not exercised, of course. He had been released by that point. But he still got those $28 million and certainly sets him up nicely for the rest of his life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Tyler White, he had a little bit more of a, a role with the Astros, if I remember correctly. Did he? Was there a year where he was the starting first baseman for the Astros or platooned? He did start, I think, in that 2015-2016 time frame. Might have overlapped a little bit with Singleton out in Houston and had more of a bench role going into 2017. I believe he spent some time with the Dodgers then over 20, probably 2018 uh, and then ended up as a free agent. Hasn't really done much since then, at least at the major league level. Brewers taking a chance on him. He is a right-handed hitter, so perhaps he has a really good spring, maybe rework some things in his swing, and the Brewers decide to keep him as a bench bat, maybe somebody who could hit left-handed pitching if they don't bring in someone to complement Rowdy Telez over at first base. Yeah, both minor deals with, I think, some upside, both Singleton and White. Uh, so minor deals we'll, we'll keep an eye on to see. I think it just comes down to performance in spring training, assuming spring training happens as normal, uh, which remains to be seen. And then finally, on the on the on the minor league baseball uh, piece, you also had uh, tweeted about Luke Barker 
a lesser known prospect in the Brewers organization who's who really has had two good years, uh, I believe, between Double A AA and Triple A. And I've heard a lot of Brewers fans, Brewers Twitter, calling for the release of Barker from the minor leagues. What are your thoughts around Barker? Seems like you're in on on seeing him in the bullpen this year. I certainly am. He is already going to be entering his age. 30 season next year, but he's got some sparkling minor league stats, especially in the upper levels. 2-3-5 ERA last year in 61 innings. Struck out 11 batters per nine, walked just one and a half. Uh, so oh, almost eight strikeouts for every walk that he had. Uh, that that number is going to probably go down at the major league level, but not many pitchers are able to do that in AAA, even out of the bullpen. He really has a good splitter, I believe is a good out pitch. And he's somebody that I think could be maybe kind of having that Jake Cousins role next year coming in perhaps in, in April or May and really finding great success in the Brewers bullpen. He actually originally was in indie ball, kind of similarly to Cousins, and the Brewers signed him out of there in 2017 where he started working his way up through the minor leagues. And he even got to indie ball after being a fifth-year senior at Chico State out in California, by no means a powerhouse baseball program. But I think it's time to free Luke Barker. I think I mentioned it last summer, and the Brewers still haven't decided to do it. I think that the Brewers should uh, should bring up Luke Barker as soon as they can for uh, for next year to be a, a key contributor in the bullpen. Yeah, 53 games in AAA last year and a whip at 0.799. Um, so exceptional year from him. And yeah, a Jake Cousins comparison I think is really, really uh, a really good comparison when you think about the, the indie ball track uh, and the older reliever who has just put up good numbers in the minors who to me I think get overlooked at times uh, I know that they're not the top prospects like we see um, otherwise even like an Aaron Ashby or an Ethan Small but to me the reality is he's performing at a, a really an elite level um, at his current state so you know what are we waiting for to at least give him a chance and I, I think there should be the opportunity I don't know we don't know exactly what the bullpen's gonna look like but you know if he pitches even somewhat similar to what he did last year uh, he'll have a spot on any roster, I think, in all of baseball, and mm -hmm. Brewers would be lucky to have him uh, pitch similarly. So, I know we, we started our, our all-time Brewers roster last week, um, but before we even jump into revealing our next five players on the roster, David, what is today's trivia question? Today's trivia question deals with one of the members of the Brewers all-time team, uh, not giving away much by, uh, by detailing his inclusion on the all-time team, Paul Molitor. And the question is, did Paul Molitor play more games as a third baseman or a DH in his Brewers career? So during his tenure with the Brewers, between 78 and 92, did he appear in more games as a third baseman or as a designated hitter? We'll have that answer, see if Peter has the uh, the correct answer. I guess 50-50, even if he's taking a, a random guess. And uh, we'll see if, the, if you guys are able to uh, get that question right. Uh, so more games at third base or DH for Paul Molitor in his Brewers career. Absolutely. We'll have the answer at the end of the podcast. And again, our all-time Brewers roster, just for those of you who didn't get a chance to listen to last episode, last week's episode, which I would suggest giving a listen if you hadn't. Uh, we covered some of the big signings, uh, the real big news that we we had in baseball last episode, as opposed to the minor league signings that Brewers had over the past week. Um, but it was a good one. And we revealed the first five players, starting pitcher Teddy Higuera, who we've got slated in the number two role all-time team. Brewers uh, relief pitcher Dan Plezak. Second baseman and Wisconsin native Jim Gantner, and then right fielder uh, Christian Yelich and center fielder Carlos Gomez, the first five all-time Brewers. And today we're going to reveal five more, starting with another starting pitcher uh, from the 1970s, Jim Slayton, who was a one-time All-Star, played with the Brewers from 71 
uh, to 77, had a, a one brief year in Detroit in 78, and then returned back to Milwaukee uh, through 1983. So basically from 71 to 83, um, spent all but one year with the Brewers, an all-star in 1977. A career win-loss record, I know that's a, a big one, especially for a guy in the 70s, 151 wins, 158 losses, 4.03 career ERA, and a 1.4 whip across 2,683 innings. Uh, a good guy was a swingman for the Brewers um, some seasons, uh, getting more starts. I know in, in 1982, of course, uh, the bigger bigger year in that decade for the Brewers, um, he made just, I believe, seven starts that year. Um, but had also a season in 1973 where he started 38 games as well in 1976, 77 had a very good year. Like I said, he was an all-star in 1977. Uh, so there you have it. Our, uh, next up starting pitcher, we've got Slayton, Slayton slated in the number four spot for the rotation. Who you got, David? Well, I wanted to interject with one thing about Slayton. Interestingly enough, following the 1977 season, we mentioned he spent that 78 year in Detroit. He was actually traded to Detroit in exchange for Ben Oglevy, who ended up having a very nice Brewers career, tied for the league lead in home runs one year. I think it was in, in 1980, and was, of course, that, that left fielder, the power bat, in uh, in the, the 1982 Brewers team that almost won the World Series. Also, probably the, the skinniest power hitter I've ever seen. Um, but I think Yelich gave him a pretty good true. run right in 18 and 19. That is true. Although we can't really call him, I don't know if we can call him a power hitter at this point. Yeah, not not as of late, but uh, but Slayton re-signed then with the Brewers following that one-year stint in Detroit, uh, going into the the '79 season. Then, uh, but we've got a reliever coming up next. Somebody that maybe wouldn't jump out of out on the page uh, as somebody who would necessarily be on the Brewers' all-time team, and that is a recent guy, Mister Jeremy Jeffress, somebody who kept coming back to Milwaukee. He was drafted by the Brewers' first-round pick in 2006, made his debut in 2010. 10 innings, uh, 3 runs, pretty solid overall, and then was included in that Zach Grinke trade where he was sent to Kansas City. Bounced around a little bit Kansas City, uh, some winter leagues, trying to gain gain some footing, went to Toronto for a little bit, just wasn't working out. Came back, signed with the Brewers, had a 1-5-1 ERA in Nashville in 2014 that led to his call-up, and was very successful, 1-8-8 ERA in 28 innings. Carried that over into 2015, uh, where he had ran a 2-6-5 ERA, 2016 first half was very good. Got included in the Jonathan Lucroy trade, where uh, they acquired Lewis Brinson, and uh, who of course led to the the Christian Yelich acquisition. But then after an unsuccessful stint in Texas, they brought him back late in 2017, and that led to tw his 2018 season, where he uh, had eight wins uh, out of the bullpen, uh, which is impressive and also extremely lucky. But he had a 1.29 ERA in, in 76 innings could be a top five Brewers relief season of all time, was really excellent that year, but then just never really got it going in 2019. Had a five ERA when he was released in early September. It was pretty solid 2020 uh, with the Cubs, but found himself in independent ball in 2021 where he was largely unsuccessful at an ERA over six in, across 20 innings, trying to make a comeback in the major leagues. Could, uh, could earn a minor league deal. Seems like someone that the Brewers would be in, maybe uh, be in on for the, the fourth time. Uh, Jeremy Jeffress, somebody who doesn't necessarily jump out, out on the page as one of the, uh, the greatest Brewers of all time, but when you look at his numbers uh, combined with the Brewers, uh, could be 
I mean, top five reliever of all time, of course we think so, but I think had a, a very underrated Brewers career, compiling a 2.66 ERA and 43 saves across over 300 innings. Yeah, absolutely under the radar uh, type of guy. I mean, you think about you're you're in a bullpen with the best reliever in baseball for the last couple of years, so that certainly I think uh, may have you know overshadowed his performance and the exceptional seasons that he put up. Obviously, Corey Knebel was there as well, um, so I think. Jeffers got a little bit less of the credit um, given what, just the talent he had around him, but he really was really, really excellent. Unfortunate to see him fall out off that quickly. Um, it is tough with, with relief pitchers. You know, one year they're one of the best in the league, and then a year or two later mm -hmm. um, they're not even pitchable in the major league. So I don't know what, what exactly that entails, but um, it is unfortunate. And I certainly agree. I could see the Brewers bringing back Jeffers on a minor league deal and, and uh, giving a giving a shot for a guy who has done a lot for the Brewers and, like you said, is well-deserving of that top five reliever spot that we've got him on the Brewers' uh, all-time roster. Another guy, very well-deserving. We mentioned him already here briefly in the beginning of the podcast via the trivia question. Paul Molitor, the igniter, um, as as he was known. You know, everybody naturally uh -huh. just called him the igniter. Uh, of course, a Major League Baseball Hall of Famer, seven-time All-Star, uh, World Series champion with the Blue Jays, four-time Silver Slugger, World Series MVP and also Manager of the Year, which I actually had to take a double take on that one. I uh, forgot about that uh, award that he received in Minnesota. It felt like an overall unsuccessful stint as the manager of the Twins. Uh, maybe, maybe it wasn't also unsuccessful. Uh, but Molitor, exceptional player, um, led the league uh, several times. I was just looking at 1982. He had 751 plate appearances and 666 at-bats. Uh, and then in, in 1991, again, also with the Brewers, 752 plate appearances and 665 at bats. Uh, he was he was definitely a gamer. He he went out there, played a lot of games. Again, se uh, second base, third base, DH. We'll get uh, the trivia question as far as where he landed on most of his time. But 3,319 hits, 306 career batting average, so above that 300 mark. 122 OPS plus, 75.7 baseball wins above replacement, and one of the best DHs of all time. Arguably one of the best third basemen of all time. I guess I'll start with the DH. Where do you see Molitor ranking? Um, and you don't have to give me a, a full breakdown on on where he might land, but among the the other, of course, Edgar Martinez, David Ortiz, your favorite Harold Baines. Where, where does Molitor do you think land against some of those other DHs? Yeah, the difficulty with with judging on where DHs land is a lot of them spent only part of their careers at the position. I'd for sure go top five. I think Edgar and and Big Poppy are outright one and two. Uh, but I think there is a little bit of wiggle room um, as far as, as Molitor uh, being there. You could even make a case for someone like Nelson Cruz now in more recent years being included, uh, possibly ahead of Molitor. Molitor spent a lot of time at DH, but he also spent a lot of time in the infield. Uh, so I would, I would say for sure top five. Uh, beyond that, it's a, a little bit difficult to gauge. Yeah, and even at, at third base, uh, when you take a look at some of the best to do it, he's not too far down the list either. Um, among Wade Boggs, Eddie Eddie Matthews, George Brett, uh, Mike Schmidt, even thinking of some of the more recent guys, Nolan Arenado, Scott Rowland, uh, probably fall behind Molitor. But he, he's probably, would you say he's a top 10 third baseman all time as well? Right around there, I, I think. Yeah, so certainly Paul Molitor, uh, of course, the exceptional career. Unfortunately, he wasn't a brewer for life. Um, was able to, of course, win that World Series championship with Toronto. But a great career from 1978 uh, to 92 with the Brewers, and then ending his career in 1998, and then again uh, as a manager of the Twins as well for a couple of years. 
And we would like to send a thank you out to Sal Bando for uh, for him not finishing his career with the Brewers. Uh, we've got a, a the back maybe the backup third baseman for the team, a, a bench guy, probably the second greatest third baseman uh, of all time in, in Brewers franchise history. Next, and that is Jeff Cirillo. He was one of the lone bright spots on uh, a Brewers team in the '90s in the the mid to late '90s where. Uh, there were there were a lot of uh, a lot of glaring holes across the roster, not a lot of success on the field, and he was one of the mainstays. That was that was pretty solid, pretty consistent. Look at his 1997 season, where he was an All Star, hit 288, 82 ribbies, and in '96, the year before, he actually hit 325, hit 321 in '98, hit 326 in '99 with an OBP over 400 in both the latter two years. So he really was was excellent in his first six, seven years in the major leagues that he spent with Milwaukee. Bounced around a little bit, Colorado, Seattle, San Diego before. Finding his way back to Milwaukee in uh, in 05 and 06. Hit 319 in a, a part-time role, kind of a platoon bench off, uh, bat off the bench in, uh, in 2006. But I didn't realize how recently he was with the Brewers, I guess now 15 years ago. But finished his career at, with a 307 average, which I know for a time was uh, was just percentage points over Paul Molitor's 307 lifetime average with the Brewers. Christian Yelich, I know, had at least eclipsed that for a time. Not sure if he still uh, has that edge over Cirillo, but Cirillo still being one of the greatest contact hitters that the franchise has ever seen, and especially in a, a period where uh, there there really wasn't much around him, maybe Jeremy Burnett or, or Jeff Jenkins. You have to think maybe Cirillo would have been a lot better if you plug him into that uh, that lineup in the early 80s or maybe the late 2000s, have him uh, hitting maybe in front of Ryan Braun and Prince Fielder. You would, you would estimate probably a little bit more success out of Jeff Cirillo, but still a very good Brewers career. Yeah, and he would have been known more as well if he was playing in that era with even with Hardy Hart, Weeks, and Fielder. Um, or even more recently, of course, with Braun and Yelich, a good guy to have in the in the lineup. Not necessarily a guy who can carry an offense, which we clearly saw. Um, the Brewers, like you said, had a lot of holes in, at, during that time, but uh, really one of the best contact hitters in Brewers history um, in in uh, Jeff Cirillo. So, final player here revealed a, a Brewers great, Storman Gorman, Gorman Thomas. I feel like you got to start with the draft story for him. Drafted in the first round by the Seattle Pilots. 1969. If you aren't familiar with the story, Gorman Thomas was drafted by the Seattle Pilots. Um, he, his parents actually let him know that he was drafted by the Seattle Pilots, and he thought that he was drafted into the military, um, and genuinely thought he was go- joining the military for some time before actually uh, receiving correspondence that, in fact, he was coming to play center field as opposed to flying an airplane. So if that's not a baseball story, I'm not sure what it is. Um, but <laughs> Gorman Thomas drafted in that first round, 21st. Overall, in this 1969 draft, of course, the only first-round pick for the lone year, Seattle Pilots. Um, Gorman, known for his uh, RBI's power bat uh, for the Brewers, of course, part of that 82 team, starting with the Brewers in 1973 and ending his career with the Brewers um, in the early 80s, 1983, it looks like. And did spend some time uh, across the rest of the league, Cleveland, Seattle as well. But really, I think, no question that he's remembered. As a Brewer, you'll still see him around uh wisconsin I, I know i saw him at the the west bend farmer's market <laughs> naturally really? yeah naturally over this over the summer he's now uh he's now 70 years old um which is which is crazy to think about 82 was a long time ago uh gorman thomas 19.8 baseball wins above replacement uh 225 batting average again not known for his 
his contact skills, but 268 home runs uh, across his career. And Gorman Thomas uh, taking that uh, final reveal for today's uh, spot. And we actually have Gorman Thomas in that center field spot, uh, again, with Christian Yelich over in right. And you can probably guess who we might have in left, but uh, we'll leave that one for another week. So Scott Pesetnik? Yeah, Pesetnik. He, I think he just missed the cut. Okay, yep, yeah. Just, just barely missed the cut. Carlos Lee is probably yeah. who you're thinking. <laughs> left field, El Caballo. So just to summarize who we've got so far, uh, in the 10 players we've revealed, starting pitchers, Teddy Higuera in the two spot, Jim Slayton number four, bullpen, Dan Flezak and Jeremy Jeffress at second base and uh, third base, Gantner and Molitor respectively, uh, backup midfielder Jeff Cirillo, and then in the outfield we've got Gorman Thomas in center, Christian Yelich in right, and Carlos Gomez on the bench as another outfielder. Uh, so again, five more players will be revealed next week. Uh, I think this is just kind of fun to, to, to look at some of the players like Jeremy Jeffress, like Jeff Cirillo, who are sometimes uh, under the radar, um, as well as just honoring the careers that guys like Paul Molitor and, and Gorman Thomas had. So here we go as we wrap into our next final topic here. Wanted to just take a look at some Brewers, a Brewers history lesson. Uh, David's got a, a bit of a history teacher in him. Uh, he's going to be going over the history of Milwaukee professional baseball, which I think a lot of us are are more unfamiliar with. I think most of us just assume that the Brewers started in eighteen, excuse me, not eighteen hundreds. They they actually did, but uh, or professional baseball did. But I think most of us think that the Brewers organization just about started in nineteen eighty two and maybe ended around eighty <laughs> two. That was kind of about about it. But <laughs> and um, we just celebrate the anniversary of the, uh, the one year that they spent. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, uh, David, why don't you jump into the starting in the eighteen hundreds uh, for Milwaukee professional baseball? Yeah, actually, it traces all the way back to eighteen seventy six. So we won't we won't uh, give uh, details of every single team that there was in the late 1800s. There were a lot. There were some independent league teams, some minor league teams. The uh, the lines were a little bit more gray back in that uh, in that era. But even in 1878, there was a team, the Milwaukee Grays, also known as the Brewers, or a, kind of a nickname that they had at the time, and they played in the National League. The uh, I mean, if you could say the same National League that we know today, but um, they went 19 and 13 before they folded. Uh, nice 32-game season, but that would have been in the same league as the Braves and uh, at the time in Boston and the the Cincinnati Red Stockings, I guess. Um, so some of those teams that we have today, uh, they would have played against played against in that in that National League. The Milwaukee Cream Cities uh, joined. They were they were uh, one of the first full season teams in 1884. Uh, and then continued even until 87. There was the first iteration of, of the Milwaukee Brewers later in the, the late 1880s and into the 1890s. And maybe the most notable person that was uh, residing over uh, professional baseball in Milwaukee in the 1880s was a guy named Cornelius McGillicuddy, who uh, I'm sure you all are uh, well aware of, of Cornelius McGillicuddy. He had a storied baseball career and is also known as Connie Mack, who is the longest tenured manager of all time. He owned the Philadelphia Athletics and managed them for uh, 50 years. He also wore a suit and a top hat in the dugout until the day he retired from managing at the age of 87 in 1950. He's got that oldest uh, managerial stint uh, under his name as well, which you would have to imagine would be the case managing for so long. But he was one of the uh, one of the managers over, I believe it was the Milwaukee Cream Cities. They had a number of minor league teams, though iter minor league iterations of different teams that came and went, playing in different ballparks. 
Borchard Field came along and was uh, built in 1888. And it was actually kind of styled in the same way as Polo Grounds. Um, if you, maybe you you, uh, you know a little bit about the Polo Grounds, Peter. Tell, tell us a little about the dimensions, maybe, of the Polo Grounds. Yeah, I think if anybody's played on uh, MLB The Show for either a home run derby or just a regular game at Polo Grounds, it's uh, it's an interesting one. It's about, feels like about 100 feet, 100 feet down, uh, down the line um, in left and right and about 500 feet to dead center. Um, it, it isn't literally that, but it definitely feels like it. Um, a, certainly a unique, uh, unique dimensions for the ballpark. And yeah, it was something that um, was styled similarly for Borchert Field, um, which was previously named Athletic Park. I, I also have to note, note that the Milwaukee Creams of, of 1889 to 1891 of the Western Association joined the American Association for the end of the season, replacing the Cincinnati Porkers. Um, that's a good... Good baseball name, Cincinnati Porkers. There, I don't know where that one exactly came from, um, but there's a an interesting one, I guess, from the late 1800s. I believe there was a lot of a uh, there. There's a strong barbecue presence in Cincinnati, presumably where where it came from. It, that that team was also known as Kelly's Killers, uh, King Kelly. I think it was in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, uh, actually, was a manager of that team. But heading into the turn of the century, a lot of minor league teams, a lot came and went, weren't able to su survive. And then came 1901, where the American League was formed uh, the prior year. And actually, you know where the American League was formed? It was formed in downtown Milwaukee. Uh, a number of owners met, and they decided to, um, to form a league where they would coexist with the National League. Ban Johnson was the first president, another member of uh, the Hall of Fame. And there's a marker, actually, if you go to downtown Milwaukee, I, I have been to the marker before at north old world third street and west kilbourne avenue there was a hotel there uh, the former republican hotel and they uh, they decided to form eight teams uh, in that uh, that original iteration of the american league and among them was the milwaukee brewers of the american league and of course they weren't in milwaukee for long and they were just here uh, here for one year and was largely unsuccessful yeah, certainly didn't didn't stick around. Um, I, I think back to the Borchert Field pictures and the in and out that the Brewers had um, in that time as a minor league team. Although they did make a comeback um, as I believe a minor league team. Is that correct? That is correct. in In 1902, already uh, they uh, they came back as as the minor league Milwaukee Brewers of the American Association. But uh, before they they came back to or came as the American Association team, the Milwaukee Brewers. They actually moved, and the franchise that was that was originally known as the Milwaukee Brewers is still in existence. They moved to St. Louis, became the St. Louis Browns, uh, and had, a, again, I guess a largely unsuccessful tenure there for about 50 years, and are now the Baltimore Orioles. So uh, if you ever are watching the Baltimore Orioles, you can uh, think back to their, uh, their roots, their ancestry, trace them back to the Milwaukee Brewers, and also be thankful that, uh, that the Brewers and the, the Orioles are not not the same that we don't we're not the ones that are punished by watching uh, the modern day Baltimore Orioles every every night. But the minor league Brewers had a pretty storied tenure in the American Association and they played all 51 seasons there at Borchert Field. Uh, named after owner longtime owner Otto Borchert. Yeah, Borchert Field's got a bit of a history to it as well. Uh, built in 1888, 133 years ago now. Um, and was demolished in 1953, uh, housed the Milwaukee Brewers, Milwaukee Creams, 
uh, several iterations of the Milwaukee Brewers, even the Milwaukee Badgers, Milwaukee Bears, the female um, league Milwaukee Chicks, and the Green Bay Packers in 1933 um, did play a game at Borchardt Field. And you, you talked about the dimensions. Left field was 267 feet. So uh, for reference, a lot of youth baseball fields are 200 to 225 a lot of times. So a major league park, 267 down left field line uh, and right field, 268. Um, left center, 435. So uh, a deep left center gap, a little bit farther than what we see now at American Family Field. And then center field, 392. So it was actually deeper in the gaps uh, than it was um, in the middle of the center field. It was also flooded and served as a hockey rink in, in the winter. Uh, <laughs> seems to make sense. I've, I've heard that's great for natural grass uh-huh. uh, baseball stadiums. Well, maybe they had uh, AstroTurf at the time. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely in the uh, in the 1800s. Uh, but certainly uh, it is uh, a bit of a, a storied stadium, obviously uh, a long time ago now, um, having been demolished over 50 years ago, but did serve, uh, I think, significant history in, like you said, professional baseball in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin. Yeah, it was, it was torn down and the place where it, it once sat now is part of I-43. Uh, it was on the north side of Milwaukee. Actually, uh, our grandfather grew up in the neighborhood that Borchert Field was in. I've heard stories of uh, sometimes the players, they, they knew uh, his, his parents and they would stop by. Uh, his, uh, so our grandfather's mother would uh, make some food, prepare some food for the players. And then in exchange, the players would uh, bring our grandfather and his some of his siblings to the games for free and, and bring them in that way. And it kind of became a, a communal event to go to uh, Milwaukee Brewers games uh, back in the old American Association. But there are a number of notable owners, managers, players that played for the, the Milwaukee Brewers. Bill Veck, who became, again, another Hall of Famer, owned the White Sox and owned the St. Louis Browns. Uh, he owned the team for a while. They had a, a few notable managers. Charlie Grimm, who managed the Cubs, also known as Jolly Charlie, um, a, a nickname that uh, surely should not be forgotten to time. And Casey Stengel actually replaced uh, good old Jolly Charlie uh, when he left for the Cubs. They had a few really good players. Uh, some some Milwaukee Braves players, Eddie Matthews, Bill Bruton, and uh, Johnny Logan being some notable ones. But we've got a, a famous Olympian, Jim Thorpe. He actually played for the Milwaukee Brewers early in, uh, I think, around 1910. They had Alvin Dark, who had a very nice major league career and was a World Series winning manager. Happy Felsch, one of the members of the the Black Sox, who was banned from baseball. He uh, grew up in uh, in... Milwaukee. He grew up on Teutonia Avenue specifically, and he played uh, played some of his earlier professional ball at uh, at uh, Borchardt Field for the Milwaukee Brewers. Al Simmons, Milwaukee native and Hall of Famer, and Gene Mauck, who actually was the manager for the uh, California Angels against the Brewers in the uh, '82 American League Championship Series. And am I remembering correctly that Bill Bill Veek was uh, a bit of an interesting owner? as well, uh, both, I think, for the Brewers and other organizations that he uh, owned in the future as well. Yeah, he was. He uh, was known to do some wild promotional things. Uh, For the White Sox, he had a disco demolition day where in between ends of the doubleheader, he had fans bring their uh, their disco uh, records, um, 
LPs and 45s. <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess I don't know. I'm too young. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I guess acting, uh, younger than the, the record, the people who listened to records back in the day, but he, he had uh, them all go onto the field and, and burn them, which led to unplayable field conditions and caused them to forfeit game two of the doubleheader. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, uh, how that exactly was going to work successfully, but, uh, yeah, he was known for some interesting gimmicks with the White Sox. I know he's known for, um, uh, but it, with the Brewers, he also had, uh, giveaway where he gave away live animals. Um, also had weddings taking place at home plate. Um, and I thought it was kind of cool. He scheduled morning games for wartime night shift workers. Mm -hmm. um, kind of a, a cool thing that we really wouldn't see today given uh, the way that night, I think money talks in the uh, media world. But certainly kept it interesting uh, as the Brewers owner. He sold his interest in the Brewers for a whopping $275,000 profit in 1945. Um, and also interesting that he actually himself tried to relocate the St. Louis Browns back to Milwaukee in the late 40s, but was vetoed by American League owners. So uh, interesting mm -hmm. to think that the Brewers could have had a professional um, or Major League American League team as early as the 40s uh, had that veto never happened. Mm -hmm. And w one story, I'm not sure if it is a, a legend or not, We can uh, we can at least... Um, act like it is real because you certainly could see it happening in, in minor league baseball in the 30s and 40s but there was that short porch out in left field we talked about at Borchert Field and when the Brewers were pitching he would roll out a 45 foot fence uh, like a like a collapsible fence and he would roll it out there so that any balls that, that were hit by the opposing team would be knocked down by the fence and would just be doubles or or singles, and then he would take the fence away when the Brewers were hitting, uh, and they they were able to hit more home runs. Seems like something that he could have gotten away with in minor league baseball 80, 90 years ago. Isn't that what the Astros did a couple a couple of years ago? Yeah, I, I think that was uh, what what part of the scandal was about. Um, I I mean we could we could try. I mean I, I don't know that a minor league team would be able to get away with that anymore, but something that uh, that supposedly went on. And during that, that tenure where the Milwaukee Brewers played there, the Milwaukee Bears of the Negro National League spent one year there. They do have some uh, some commemorative jerseys that they will sometimes wear to honor them. And the Milwaukee Chicks of the Girls Professional Baseball League, uh, probably the most famous um, the most famous part of the, that league being the uh, Tom Hanks movie, A League of Their Own, which came out already about 30 years ago now. Yeah, I actually did not realize that Milwaukee had... Uh, a, a female baseball uh, team in the 40s during that time until now. So I, interesting. I've, I've seen that movie. I uh, probably just missed the, the reference or forgot about them. Um, but interesting to note both that team and, like you said, the Milwaukee Bears, who we see commemorated uh, most years by the Brewers at this point. So we're, we're approaching the 1950s, and which will likely, of course, be the Braves era. Any other final uh, things that are noteworthy prior, we, prior to uh, getting to the history of the Braves, uh, which we'll cover next episode. Well, in the late 40s, we talked about Bill Veck trying to bring the Browns to Milwaukee. And it wasn't just Veck who wanted the Browns to go to Milwaukee. Many members of, of Milwaukee wanted a major league ball club. They felt like they deserved one. They were big enough. They were, I think, Milwaukee was a top 15 city at the time by population. Uh, a very, very big Midwestern city at the time. It has fallen in size a little bit since then. But that was overall the uh, the belief, and owners were hesitant to let expansion teams come in, and they were uh, hesitant to let teams move because really the the sixteen team setup had been 
the same teams that had been in each city uh, for already about 40, 50 years by then since around the turn of the century. Yeah, and you think about all all of the, the failures that we saw across leagues and teams over the last 50 years, really, you finally got something that is actually working as a business, um, building something sizable. And I, I'm certainly, uh, I'm sure that there were there was a lot of concern from the owners um, and the other backers of the organizations of the league as a whole to say, all right, let's, you know, make changes and potentially risk what we've built which at this at that point had been unattainable over the last fifty years. Mm -hmm. So heading into that, uh, the late forties and, and into nineteen fifty, then the Milwaukee City Council met and decided to really seek to improve the city. And as part of their plan, they decided that they were going to build an NBA arena and a Major League Baseball stadium. And this was a huge leap of faith because uh, there had hadn't really been teams that had moved since nineteen oh three or nineteen oh two around then and uh, building a major league stadium could become kind of a, a money dump where you don't end up getting what you uh, spent in the construction of the stadium. It was passed though. The NBA decided to move the the Tri Cities Blackhawks uh, team from uh, Quad Cities, Iowa, and moved them to Milwaukee. Ended up becoming the Milwaukee Hawks for a time in the 50s. And that leaves off kind of where we're, where we're uh, leaving off today, where Milwaukee's still seeking to get a Major League Baseball team. There have been talks about the Browns coming to Milwaukee. There have been talks about the Cardinals coming even. And uh, of course, we know how the story ends, that, that the Braves decide to come. Uh, but we will give you the backstory on the Braves coming to Milwaukee in our next episode. Um, and what happens to Borchert Field, what happens to the minor league Milwaukee Brewers, and what kind of how the, some of the rest of the, uh, the things transpire into the 50s and 60s, maybe the most successful decades in Milwaukee baseball history. Yeah, I think that we covered a lot of the forgotten years in Milwaukee professional baseball today. Probably a lot of us not familiar uh, with the, the long history, the storied history, really, uh, professional baseball has had in Wisconsin um, so fun to just go over that today, and like you said, a uh, good couple decades we'll be we'll be covering next episode. Stay tuned for that, David. So before we head out today, what's today's trivia question? Today's trivia question is: Did Paul Molitor play more games as a Brewer at third base or DH? Yeah, I'm gonna go with third base, and this one, of course, Molitor started his career with the Brewers, um, and I know uh, later on played more games at DH as his health uh, deteriorated a little bit. So I'm going to go with third base uh, for today's trivia question answer. That is correct. Although Molitor did play more games at DH for his career. So if you include the time he spent in Toronto and in Minnesota, he spent more at DH. But for this question, third base is the answer, as he spent more time as a brewer at third base. He actually came up as a shortstop when Robin Yount got hurt and then was mulling retirement prior to the 1978 season. Molitor then took over his, his shortstop role and then tried to find different ways to put him in uh, the lineup. They had Don Money at third at the time. He played some second. Gantner then kind of emerged, and they even tried Molitor in the outfield in 81, played 30 or 40 games in uh, center field in 81, decided not to do that, and went back to him playing in the infield and ended up carving out a role as probably the second greatest brewer of all time. Yeah, no question about that. Paul Molitor, uh, like you said, just behind... Of course, Robin Yount in his uh, excellence with the Brewers. So, David, uh, I know not a lot of t news in baseball as we uh, muddle through the lockout, a couple minor league signings, and uh, revealing the Brewers roster and breaking down 
the early years of professional baseball. Any final thoughts before we go today? Well, there really isn't much news on the front of uh, the, the lockout, which unfortunately is kind of expected. Uh, we didn't think that there'd be a lot of news coming up over the next uh, the next couple uh, couple days, couple weeks, even really until after the holiday season has concluded. And it seems like uh, that they'll kind of re uh, reopen negotiations in uh, in uh, the new year. And there is some some things going on. We'll, we'll actually talk about them some next episode. The Hall of Fame inducted six new members: Bud Fowler and the great Buck O'Neill. Uh, from the early days committee, and then from the more recent era, Jim Cott, Tony Oliva, Gil Hodges, and Minnie Minoso, the four uh, who came in, Cott and Oliva still being alive. So a great honor for those players, and uh, there weren't any brewers that were up for uh, for nomination via the Veterans Committee, and we'll get uh, the, the results of the, the writer's ballot coming up in still about three, four weeks, uh, but in January, and and We'll discuss who we think should make it, shouldn't make it. Uh, we've got Gary Sheffield on that Hall of Fame ballot and Prince Fielder as well, already making his debut on the Hall of Fame ballot. Yeah, that's crazy. Prince Fielder already there. Um, and I think there's some interesting ones there in the committee's uh, decision to induct six new members. We'll break that down next week. Uh, I think some that were deserving, others that I thought were a bit of a stretch. But then again, we also saw Harold Baines go into the Hall of Fame. So uh, I feel like the bar's kind of been... Uh, uh, loosened or lowered um, more recently. I, rather than opening up that can of worms, like I said, we'll cover that next week, as well as reveal the next five players on our all-time Brewers roster and pick up where we left off with, of course, Milwaukee Braves, Warren Spahn, Eddie, Matthew, Eddie Matthews, and of course, Hank Aaron. Your should be a fun one. Feel free to tune in to next week's episode. And as always, go Brewers! Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Bleeding Blue and Yellow podcast. We would greatly appreciate if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love if you would be willing to support our podcast financially. And you can find the link to do that down below in the episode notes through the Anchor app. Be sure to check out our blog at bleedingblueandyellow.wordpress.com where you can find great articles and content there. And interact with us at Brewers Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. Thanks for listening and see you next week.